Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano, I'm hosting today's program. Anarchy, 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 anarchy. Anarchos without rulers. How does a society without rulers look like? Well, it's like any disease. You've got to find out what type of disease you've got before you can plot your uh, way to better health or the, uh, the pine box. So anarchos... Without rulers. How do you create a society without rulers? You look at what gives rulers power. What gives rulers power? Inequalities in power and wealth. The greater wealth you have, the greater ability you have to actually determine the lives of other people. The greater power you're able to exercise and the more concentrated that power is in the fewer and fewer hands, the greater influence you have to affect the lives of billions, if not you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions. So the so not the Anzac I got a bit forward here, but the Anarchist struggle is a struggle to devolve power, which is a fancy name for saying to try to equalise power and to share wealth, to hold wealth in common, a distribution of wealth based on need, not greed. Very simple concepts: equality in power and wealth. And how do you get equality in power? One mechanism is through direct democratic processes, where the people involved decision make a decision. Instead of electing representatives, as you will be doing if you're voting on the 18th of May, uh, a delegate system or a direct democracy system is based on delegation. You make the decisions regarding that particular issue that affects you with other people that it affects. Then you appoint or or uh, elect delegates to coordinate those decisions at a local regional and national level. Sounds complex? Well, it is complex. Democracy is about participation. Demos, the people. So, I think I'll start off with what's happening in Sudan because we did do a pretty comprehensive thing and people say, why, why Sudan? Well, we're actually seeing a revolution and a counter-revolution and it's all intertwined. And it's intertwined with the United States thinking they still control the universe, not the world, the universe. Let's not forget that Mr Trump wants to militarise space. So currently, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are in a significant 
power struggle. And both of these are feudal monarchies, brutal feudal monarchies, which are ruled by Sharia law. Let's not forget that. Feudal hereditary monarchies who are in the throes of a life and death battle with more democratic forces in the Middle East. Now, the United States of America has thrown its support behind Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates because of their stranglehold on oil production. Now, unfortunately for these Middle Eastern powers, there is a lot of resistance to their interference in other people's lives in the Middle East to a significant degree. And we've seen a number of wars across this region, including Yemen, where over 100,000 people have died in the last year or so in a brutal war between various factions. And one faction is supported by the Saudi Arabia and the United States of America. Now, Sudan... The military rulers of Sudan have been involved in that campaign in Yemen and they have provided the muscle, the military, the infantry, the feet on the ground. They provided the muscle to the Saudi Arabian uh, aerial bombardments in that region. Now, currently, Sudan is in the midst of a potential revolutionary change, potential revolutionary change. And what we saw on Sudanese TV a a few days ago would have been impossible uh, a few weeks ago. What we saw is women with their heads uncovered actually discussing things publicly on TV. You've got to remember Sudan is ruled by Sharia law and that the military dictatorship that has been running Sudan and pillaging the country for the last 30 years including the brutal war in Darfur and southern Sudan, has come basically trying to rehabilitate itself. Now, although al-Bashir, the former dictator, has been removed, in inverted commas, from office, his replacement, Mr Abdul Fattah Bouhan, is basically the military chief of the Sudanese forces in Yemen. Now, the major reason for the revolt initially was a revolt about declining economic conditions. And what we've seen in the last two or three days is how it works, how, how the world works, how it's all interconnected. We've seen the United Arab Emirates and the Saudi Arabia give a $3 billion gift to the Sudanese military dictatorship in order to stabilise the economy and actually give Sudanese a false sense of thinking that things are improving under the military dictatorship. Because a week ago, it would cost, you would get 70 Sudanese pounds for a US dollar, today it's 40. So this injection of cash, a gift, not a loan, injection of cash is used to stabilise what's happening in Sudan and ensure that the military dictatorship takes the wind out of the reform movement, which has now been protesting continuously for over four months and which is having some 
impact on the ground, significant impact, especially younger people in Sudan, if all they've known is the Bashir military dictatorship. At the same time, what the President of the US of America did is he vetoed a congressional and Senate resolution in the United States to remove United States support for Saudi Arabian forces, United Arab Emirates forces in Yemen. Because Mr Trump, the groper, has had a very close relationship with the feudal monarchy that rules Saudi Arabia, and that began with a $100 billion um, arms contract at the, at the beginning of his uh, presidency two years ago. Now, currently, the United States of America is trying to squeeze Iran, economically bankrupt Iran, so that there are revolts in Iran which see the overthrow of the mullahs. So it has introduced an oil embargo and is now escalating that oil embargo in order to try to prevent countries like India and Japan and uh, uh, China and Russia from actually importing diesel, because Iran is noted for diesel oil, you know, and buying diesel from Iran. So it's made this. So, so who does this benefit in the long run? Obviously, it benefits the Saudi Arabian government and the United Arab Emirates because they will be asked to step up oil production to fill the void because if that doesn't occur, there'd be increasing prices uh, for diesel, especially in the West, and that would cause a lot of uh, consternation among uh, the business community. So there it is, very simple, all interrelated. People trying to maintain power by using their wealth and their military capabilities to enslave billions, hundreds of millions of people. And the Middle East is a classical example of how it all intertwines and how it all works and the prominent role the United States of America plays in this little um, exercise where they attempt to dictate to other countries who they should trade with, whether it's Venezuela, which has been uh, the victim of an oil embargo now for years, or whether it's Iran or any other nation states which somehow doesn't follow the United States, the United States deregulation, corporatisation, privatisation bandwagon. So there it is. Can you do anything about it? Possibly not. But again, it's important to understand how it all works. Otherwise, it just seems like, you know, it's things don't are not connected. They are connected. Let's move on. Now, I understand that according to the fourth estate in this country, that the the Australian Labor Party has bowed, bowed to the demands of the unions in terms of uh, increasing uh, a basic wage to a living wage in order to ensure that casuals who are basically employed permanently have the ability to become uh, permanent workers and in terms of actually increasing the minimum wage of imported foreign workers in order to ensure that they don't undercut local people. So these are three 
policies which the ALP is currently floating in its election campaign. But I like I like the word bowed to union demands. Now, well, the ALP, the Australian Labor Party, was actually formed in 1891 after the disastrous 1891 Shearer strike by the trade union movement. And although it has moved a fair way from the trade union movement, its main support is the trade union movement. So it's not about bowing to union demands. It's about listening, listening to trade unions, listening. It's about listening. And when you talk about bowing, how look at the way we have been kowtowing, not just bowing and genuflexing, but kowtowing, lying on the ground, kowtowing to employers' demands, kowtowing to employers' demands to keep minimum wages at ridiculous levels while corporations maximise profits over the last uh, uh, two decades, the amount of return for every dollar invested to an investor and a corporation is 66% and 33% goes to the people that create that wealth, the workers. 20 to 30 years ago, it was the opposite way around. 66% of every dollar which was invested went back to the workers, the people who created the wealth, and 33% went to the investor. So here we are. We kowtow, kowtow. Every day, every minute of every day to employers' insatiable demands for ever-increasing profits, irrespective of the effect that these insatiable demands have on individual workers and groups of workers and Australians as a whole. Where we see the poorest or the least paid, being the most exploited. And that's the key word, exploited. Well, the government sits on its hands and refuses to address that exploitation. Refuses to address that exploitation. So here we are, we kowtow constantly to employers' demands and investors' demands for ever-increasing profits, irrespective of the human, social, environmental and national costs. Well, the fourth estate craps on and goes on about the ALP election uh, campaign bowing to union demands. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Let's move on. So it's an interesting election campaign. I'm actually, it's the first time since 1988 that I've actually not haven't been a candidate for a variety of reasons. And it's interesting to actually sit back and see how the election campaign is stage managed, how we see different people being thrown forward, like Mr Palmer, fifty million dollars advertising, seems to be having an effect in North Queensland. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Let's see when the results roll in. Quite interesting. People think, oh well. You know, it just shows you, you know, you don't really need to have much credibility in life. You can shortchange your workers, you can refuse to pay your bills, you can uh, uh, transfer the ownership of your company overseas while claiming to put Australia first. You can be the hypocrite of all hypocrites, but if you've got enough advertising dollars, enough uh, social media advertising, enough print media advertising, enough radio advertising, billboard advertising, television advertising... 
there'll be somebody who's willing to vote for you, irrespective of lack of policies. Not that policies really matter, as we've just seen with the Ukrainian election, where you know, a comedian with no policies was elected. I can understand why in Ukraine. But that's the way it goes. So think about it. Kowtowing. Unbelievable. Let's move on. Water. It's interesting how the word gate is always used. Gate, 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 gate is always used when there's a little bit of a whiff of a bit of a scandal. And uh, Mr Barnaby Choice, who's the member for Armadale, the National Party member for Armadale, former Deputy Prime Minister and, Liberal, and member of the Liberal National Party before he forgot to uh, do up his fly. Um, it's interesting how he's back in the headlines. Now, water. Now, I don't think many of our listeners understand, especially in an urban setting, that water, the lifeblood, the very lifeblood of existence is a tradable commodity in the land of Oz. Now, farmers since 1994, with the corporatisation of this country's water supply, farmers have been allocated fixed amounts of water or certain amounts of water depending on the need for the farm, the need for the environment, and the list goes on and on. So farmers actually allocated water by the state, by the government. It makes an allocation. It says you are entitled to so much water over the next season. You're entitled to no water, blah, blah, blah. Okay? Now, interesting thing is that you can either use that water or you can sell that water. Isn't that interesting? You have the ability to sell that water on an open market, in an open market. So now we have a market just in the Murray-Darling Basin, just in that basin, worth $2 billion a year, where water is traded, bought and sold. With the government of the day, which is actually is the owner of the water, buys back that water from private corporations who are not interested in actually farming. They're not interested in using that water to create products or feed animals. They're interested in that water as a commodity. They go around buying farms at discount prices of uh, smaller farmers who have been squeezed out of the the farming fraternity and then leave that land fallow and trade that water, sell that water back to the government for a profit sell the rights to access that water. And not only access water allocations, but the right to sell the runoff from that property back to the government. 
So this is the end point of that corporatisation game, where in 1994, water was made a tradable commodity. So what we see is people jockeying to fill government contracts. We see hedge funds and corporations trading water for a profit, not using that water for farming practices. And at the same time, we see farmers being starved of water and in certain cases actually not allocated any water over the next 12 months because of the current drought. So the same garbage that we see in the electricity system with its generation, distribution, whatever, which was the result of privatisation, we see in the water market. But most of us being urban dwellers, we have no understanding of how that basic essential commodity, which should be owned by the state or the people, is now a tradable commodity. Where... It's not how you use the water which is important. What is important is how much water you can acquire, which you can then resell in the marketplace for a profit at a later date when there is a shortage of water and the government at the state and federal level needs to buy back water in order to put water back into the system to ensure the Murray-Darling Basin continues to flow. And you think you live in a civilised society. Give me a break. This is an exact example. This is a classic example of what happens when you privatise basic commodities and basic necessities, when you leave it to the marketplace to determine what a price is. So Barnaby Joyce's problem is, and previous government's problems have been, is who have they bought that water from? Have they bought it off mates? Have they used their position in Parliament to ensure their mates make a buck? Who knows? But it's the whole system which is wrong. I mean, if you're allocated water by the state for farm use, that water should be used for farm use. And if you'd not be able to be traded openly as a commodity in an open marketplace, because what that does is it destroys the ability of the smaller farmer to survive and allows corporations to dominate that marketplace and set the price that they feel they can maximise their profits at for the monopoly or duopoly that they have over this essential commodity, water. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Scan. I'm hosting today's program. If you wish to discuss matters, matters further, you can leave messages at 0439 395 489. You can go on the, uh, you can go to my Anarchist Media, Anarchist Media Institute page, anarchistmedia.org, anarchistmedia.org. See what's happening. Uh, you can actually. Um, Look at a number of the web pages that I'm involved in, public interests before corporate interests, P 
pipsi.org, P-I-B-C-I.org, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Go to the YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Facebook page, Toscano for the Public, Toscano for the Public. Uh, you can go to tons of stuff. Twitter account, Pipsi, P-I-B-C-I underscore A-U, Pipsi, P-I-B-C-I underscore A-U. So there's lots of things happening. Lots of ways you can contact me. You can always write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post, Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. And, don't re- and j- just remember, just remember, I don't get paid. I'm a volunteer. Yeah, I might not get back to you for a day or two, but that's the way it is. And if I don't get back to you, re-ring, re-write, re-email. You can email me at anarchistage at yahoo.com, anarchistage at yahoo.com, or info at pipsy.net. I encourage you strongly to look at the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest website, Pipsy. Yeah, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest website. I encourage you to look at it uh, and uh, join. You know, you've got a great chance over the, on the 18th of December to cast a ballot and forget all about it for the next uh, three years and whinge and carry on and jump up and down or you can actually get involved in the democratic process which means getting involved in protests organisations petitions because what happens in between elections is just as important if not more important than the ballot that you cast on the uh, 18th of uh, May you can join public interests before corporate interests by going to pipsy pipsy p-i-b-c-i Dot net, pipsy, B-I-C-C-D-I. So the dot net or dot org, for some reason, it's escaped me at the minute. But go public interest before corporate interest, the website, you can't go wrong. Now, I did make an offer, which hasn't been taken up, that I'm quite happy to do at any public meeting regarding public interest before corporate interests anywhere in Victoria and possibly Tasmania in July in order to explain what public interest before corporate interest is all about, in order to try to uh, increase our membership to the 550 people on the electoral roll that is required to register public interest before corporate interest as a federal political party. And the main reason I'm actually not standing in this year's uh, federal election, the main reason is I think it's more important that we get Pipsy over the line, get it registered as a federal political party, and that will give the opportunity for the members of the organisation to stand in electorates across this country at the next federal election and put forward policies which put the interests of the many, that's the public, before the interests of the few. So you can download the application form or you can ring me for a, a copy which I'll send you, just leave a contact address or you can write to us at Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052 or you can leave a private message on the uh, Facebook page Toscano for the Public. So there are many mechanisms by which you can join public interests before corporate interests and become part of an organisation that not only is interested in electoral politics but is also interested in conducting that struggle over the next three years, a struggle to put the interests of the many before the interests of the few. And it's all very well to, you know, be disappointed or happy or, you know, unhappy at the end of this uh, federal election. But the issue is the issue is uh, policies to a large degree come from below. And if there's one thing we we can remember from the Algerian and Sudanese revolutions which are occurring now is that 
policies come from below. Whether you live in a dictatorship or a parliamentary democracy, policies come from below and they come from a push for change. And that's the difference between now and the 1960s and 1970s. And I can see you rolling your eyes and saying, oh, Jay, don't bring up this garbage again. That's the difference. When I first started on this journey in 1968, which is over 50 years ago, when I first started on this journey, we had a belief that we could change things by using our bodies, by being active participants in the democratic process. We had that belief we could change things. And we had faith, in inverted commas. We were optimistic that change was possible. Bring the clock forward 50 years and that optimism is no longer part of everyday political change. What we see is the growth of what's described as identity politics or single-issue politics, things like the marriage equality campaign. We've got marriage equality, so what? You know? So what? Hmm? So what? What we need to do is be looking at campaigns that actually make a fundamental change and those campaigns revolve around the two things that I mention and re-mention and mention and re-mention every day, every radio program of the last 42 years. That is devolving power, sharing power and holding wealth in common. Unless we make these two major fundamental changes what we have is froth. And this society, capitalism, can incorporate anything except campaigns which hit their nerve, the Achilles heel, the ability to create a profit out of other people's labour. They can tolerate an anti-racist campaign They can tolerate a uh, sexual equality campaign. They can tolerate a vegan campaign. It can be incorporated into a capitalist uh, framework. They can tolerate an environmental green campaign. Obviously, it's not going to happen overnight, but as people push and shove and push and shove, those campaigns, those wins are incorporated. But they cannot incorporate campaigns which strike at the very heart of the way they exercise power, at the very heart of how wealth is created and distributed. And that's why we talk about here on the Anarchist World this week about the need to create a third economic force in Australian society. Today, 95% of all human activity is privatised. 5% is still left in government hands and 0.0001% is in the hands of cooperatives and collectives. We need to increase the economic input and power of cooperatives and collectives because cooperatives and collectives do not make individuals rich. 
but they do provide people with the basic necessities of life and the security that's required in a capitalist society. So if you increase the cooperative and, co- cooperative and collective sector of the economy at the expense of the private sector, what you will see is a greater ability of people to be employed in secure, reasonably paid jobs. It's very simple. So why do you think every time somebody talks about a living wage or increasing new start allowance that everybody throws their hands up in horror? Because it means that people have to acknowledge the concept of a social contract, the need for social cohesion, the need for a vision and optimism, the need to put the interests of the many before the interests of the few. Because we are not atomised individuals who are competing against each other for a bigger you know, slice of the pie, as we've been told over the last 40 years. We have seen the breakdown of social cohesion, the increase in the way that people who have simple solutions now have become accepted as prominent political figures in this country. We have seen the pauperisation of an increasing number of Australians who in many regards find themselves in the same situation Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders found themselves in when they were dispossessed by the colonisers. Now we're being dispossessed by a group of people that have been brought across in order to ensure that people don't join unions and that uh, profits are not shared. And we call it efficiency. So for the last 40 years... 99% of the population in this country has been marching behind the corporate Pied Piper. The Pied Piper, those of you who are old enough to remember the story of the Pied Piper, he went through the villages and the children followed him. And and this was an analogy to the fact of the Children's Crusade where children were lured out of the villages in medieval Europe joined the crusade to free the holy city and found themselves sold into slavery on the way to that crusade. It's the same now for the corporate Pied Pipers. The corporate Pied Pipers, aided and abetted by governments who, you know, were actually providing the tune, said that if we embark on the privatisation, corporatisation, globalisation deregulation, train ride, it'll all be good. Well, I'm sitting here and you're sitting there or standing there or walking or running or jogging. I don't know what you're doing. I never will. I don't particularly care what you're doing when I'm talking. As long as you listen. You've got the corporate Pied Piper. We are now sitting in the debris. That's right. The debris of the corporatisation, deregulation, deregulation, globalisation, privatisation tsunami which has swept not just over this country but almost every other country on this planet. 
and we are sitting in the debris, looking round and thinking, is this all there is? Is this what we have after 40 years of this failed ideological madness? Where so-called representative governments, elected governments, have forgotten their primary responsibility is to the people, demos, democracy, not to the puppet masters who pull the parliamentary strings, not to that 1% that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. So we see a breakdown in social cohesion, which we can't police our way out. We see an increase in the exploitation of people who work through casualisation, through minimum wages that don't actually even pay the bills, through the marginalisation and criminalisation of trade unions, through the pauperisation of the one-third of Australians, over 8 million, who rely on social security benefits to survive, people on, you know, who are called welfare bludgers and cheats, when in reality we have a social security system, not a welfare system where we dole out bits and pieces to people, although through the you know, the card that they were trying to introduce around this country. It's about doling out, doling out welfare. It is a social contract that each and every one of us is involved in, whether we know it or not. It's that social cohesion which gives us the ability to be prosperous and to be secure. Because you can have police on every corner of every street and you can have a military that's willing to happy to pounce at any time. But that doesn't give you social cohesion. It doesn't give you that ability to live in a society and maximise your ability to live in that society in a secure environment. So as, as we sit in the debris, we sit in the debris and we look around and we say, that wasn't a good idea. That wasn't a good idea. We see governments at the local, state and federal level are now being forced to look at the debris. Not act on the debris, but look on the debris. Because of increasing dislocation. Not in terms of protest, because most people are very happy to continue on their little identity uh, journey on the identity politics journey, those that are involved in social protest. And 99% of people are happy to sit back and say, well, we'll see if things improve after the next election. But the reality is the pressures are increasing. And as the pressures increase on individuals, individuals take action. And as those individual actions coalesce, you create a mass movement a movement that has a profound impact on what's occurring around us, a movement which puts social cohesion before individual profit, a movement which puts the welfare of all of us before the profits of individuals and small groups, 
a movement which recognises the democracy is more than casting a ballot every three to four years. It's about constant agitation in between elections. A movement that understands that nothing will change unless maximum political pressure is exercised on our so-called political representatives to put our interests before the interests of everybody as a whole. Put our interests before the interests of that the one percenters. A movement that recognises that the fourth estate is as responsible for the situation we find ourselves in, where there is no hope or optimism. Hope, the love child of desire and expectation, desire for change and expectation for change. A movement that understands the fourth estate, whether it's the legacy fourth estate or the new fourth estate on social media is as responsible for the fragmentation and pauperisation of life in this country as any other actor. But again, we need to be able to work together to address these issues, whether it's the issue of public housing, where what we see is a ragtag bunch of people marginalised, ostracised, ignored, who are the only people left pushing for the reintroduction of public housing as a mechanism via which to address the issues of housing affordability. Not just public housing for people in desperate circumstances, not community housing, not affordable housing, but housing which is owned and managed by the state on behalf of the people. Housing doesn't have to be huge inner city blocks which can be provided by spot purchasing as the market you know, decreases in value across the country. Different ideas which are quite achievable, not revolutionary change, simple ideas providing housing affordability and security for the increasing number of Australians who cannot ever afford to have a secure roof over their heads. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. Now, next week we're having a special May Day program. I know most of you think that May Day is totally irrelevant. Now, I'll be doing a history of May Day in Melbourne, in Australia. Because I think it's important that we understand what May Day is all about. We look at the facts, not the fiction, the facts. And obviously people in Queensland will enjoy a May Day holiday, but obviously people in Victoria will not enjoy a May Day holiday because the movement to declare that as a public holiday never really got off the ground in Victoria, which prides itself as being one of the more radical bastions of Australia, but next week. But in order to celebrate May Day, and I'm giving you a heads up here, we are having a little gathering, and how big it is depends on you, obviously. If you live in Melbourne, and obviously there'll be May Day celebrations across the country, but I'm, uh, I'll be talking about Melbourne. If you live in Melbourne, we'll be meeting at the historic eight-hour monument across the road from Mel- uh, Victoria's Trades Hall near the corner of a Victoria Street and Ligon Street, the eight-hour monument. You can't miss it. Please bring flowers. We meet in there at midday, and then uh, 
after about 10 or 15 minutes, we'll be marching across to Her Majesty's Theatre. Her Majesty's Theatre in Russell Street. Why Her Majesty's Theatre? Well, the history of uh, Australian anarchism, the history of May Day and the history of the eight-hour struggle are interlinked. And the Melbourne Anarchist Club, the first anarchist organisation formed in this country, was filmed on the 1st of May, 1886. And they had a room up there in Her Majesty's Theatre. And after that, we'll be crossing across to the Paramount uh, uh, Lounge for uh, lunch. Nice day. Nice day. 1st of May, Wednesday the 1st of May, midday. And again, I said I'll spend some time at the ne- in the next program on the 1st of May talking about the history of May Day, midday, eight-hour monument in, uh, across the roads from Melbourne Trades Hall, then across to Her Majesty's Theatre and then lunch at about 1pm at uh, Paramount. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Scarno. Now, last but not least, Anzac Day. Anzac, Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. Anzac. Now, the history of Anzac Day is told and retold and told and retold and manipulated to suit current political conditions. I mean, the purpose of Anzac Day, historically, was to acknowledge those who had died in war in this country. Now, what we've seen over the last few decades is how Anzac Day has been remoulded as a day of nationalism and a day of militarism. As social conditions change, governments and the fourth estate and various organisations have been able to manipulate Anzac Day in such a way as to change its eternal nature. And if you want to learn about half-truths and lies, just listen to the garbage which will pour out the mouths of so many commentators on the 25th of April. So what I'd like to do in the last few minutes of this program is just give you a, you know, a little bit of a history of Anzac Day and what it's all about. Now, World War One was essentially a little dirty little trade war fought by workers at either end of a bayonet, which resulted in the deaths of over 20 million people. And of those 20 million people who died, 62,000 were Australians. Australia was a divided nation during World War One. When war was declared in August 1914, there was great celebration and the Labor Prime Minister, one of the first Labor Prime Ministers in the war, said that he would support the British war effort to the last shilling and the last man. Within 12 months of the war beginning, people realised the disaster that we were immersed in. In 1914, Australia had a population of around 5 million, which is about one-fifth of the population we have today. 5 million. Not many people. 
And of that population of 5 million, 420,000 volunteered to fight in the war to end all wars. And in one day in that military campaign in 1917 on the Western Front, over 8,000 Australians died in one day. Of those 420,000 Australians who went to war, volunteers, of the 420,000, 62,000 died on the European killing fields in the most grotesque manner. Not for democracy, not for freedom, not for liberty, not to liberate people from, you know, uh, dictatorial governments, but they died on the altar of Mammon. They died for the glory of God, king and country. Things were so bad when the relatives wanted to put epitaphs on the tombstones of these men who were buried in European killing fields. Anybody who made any negative reference to the war or the royal family, those epitaphs were not allowed. And of the 66 letters that they were given were allowed to write, and that included the spaces between on the tombstones, since not only do they have to pay to have the inscription placed on that tombstone, but the censors denied relatives the ability to express their feelings about how hideous and useless this war was. Australians fought back. Not on the European killing fields, but they fought back in Australia. Faced with a decrease in the number of volunteers as people realised the stupidity and futility of what was happening in Europe and that it was a war for money, glory, king and country, the government split and attempted to introduce conscription. But the resistance to conscription was so extreme the government's forced to call a plebiscite. And in the midst of the war in December 1916, the Australian people said enough is enough. They said no to conscription. And they said no to conscription again in late 1917. And it's no exaggeration to say if they had not said no to conscription, another 100,000 Australians would be sacrificed on the European killing fields for the glory of God, king and country. And don't forget that within 10 years of the return of the 300,000 survivors, another 100,000 had died of their war wounds. And don't forget the profound impact that this had on Australian society. The fact that one in two families lost relatives, brothers, uncles, grandfathers, fathers, for nothing. They don't let them tell you that World War I was justified in any way. Obviously, the history of World War II is different. It's a history about resistance against fascism, although we had our own homegrown fascists in this country. And let's not forget that most of our military intervention since World War II 
have been fought on other people's soils, on other people's battles. Nothing to do with the protection of this country. So on the 25th of April, remember. Remember the dead. Remember the wounded. Remember the impact on their families. Remember the impact of the people involved in those conflicts. Remember the futility of war. Remember how people are manipulated to suit current political concerns. Remember how people were manipulated during the Vietnam War and the Iraq War. Just remember. Because we do need to remember. Because if we forget, or if we allow people to turn Anzac Day into a glorification of militarism and nationalism, we have lost that battle. Lest we forget. Lest we forget the futility of war. Lest we forget the sacrifice of the 62,000 young Australian men, 80% of whom were single, who never had a chance to live their life fighting in this war to end all wars, which ended no wars. Lest we forget the half a million people on the streets of Melbourne when the Iraq invasion occurred. Lest we forget the role of the draft resistors during the Vietnam War whose exploits helped to end conscription, lest we forget. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joshua Scarner. You can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052, Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can email me at anarchistage at yahoo.com. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. A few Facebook pages you could look at. Public Housing, Everybody's Business, Toscano for the Public. Go to the uh, YouTube channel, Public Interests Before Corporate Interests. We've got a few YouTube uh, presentations there. You can Twitter. You can look at the Twitter on uh, pibci, P-I-B-C-I underscore A-U. You can join Pipsy by... Uh, uh, download the application form from pipcpibci.org. Remember, history is not what you read in history books. History is the pathway to the present and the highway to the future. And we need to reclaim that history and we need to tell the truth when the truth needs to be told, especially on days like Anzac Day and May Day. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is a podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. And don't forget, nothing changes without effort. Reading, thinking, clicking buttons doesn't make any difference. Get those feet on the ground change the future. Listen to The Anarchist World this week, next week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 
10am every Wednesday. Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger! You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.